Support for this podcast comes from the Baltimore chapter of NAWIC, the National Association of Women in Construction, in honor of Women in Construction Week, March 7th through 13th, 2021. NAWIC advocates for the value of women builders, professionals, and tradeswomen in all aspects of the construction industry. Learn more about NAWIC's core purpose to strengthen and amplify the success of women in the construction industry at nawic.org and nawicbaltimore.org. Welcome back to Sparrow's Points, an American Steel story. I'm Aaron Henkin. Last episode, we learned about the 1974 consent decree that reformed seniority systems in the steel industry that were robbing minority workers of advancement opportunities and higher pay. In this episode, we're going to learn about another ripple effect of that consent decree. It finally threw the doors of Bethlehem Steel open to women. Now, women worked at Sparrows Point for a long time, but their jobs were mainly clerical and secretarial. There was one segregated all-woman squad in the mill for a while called the Tin Floppers. They had their own female foreman. And during the Rosie the Riveter era of World War II, the mill did temporarily hire women in the shipyards while men were off to war. But again, it wasn't until the 1970s that Sparrows Point officially began to hire women into all departments in the mill. According to government order, the new rule was for every 100 workers hired, 25 had to be black and 25 had to be women. And I figured out when they hired me, they could check off two checks, black woman. This is Rita Hamlet. She's one of three women of steel we're going to meet this episode. And when she went to Sparrows Point in 1973, she wasn't even looking for a job. You know, I didn't go there to even get hired. I went to take my brother and my cousin there, and I seen two ladies coming out. And I say, Miss, they hiring women now? She said, yeah, they're going to start. And I went in and filled out the application. And two weeks later, they sent for me, and they said, oh, well, for you to get a job, you have to gain 10 pounds. So I came back and two weeks and I had gained seven pounds and four ounces. They said, well, we're going to hire you if you can gain seven pounds in two weeks. But don't get mad with me, Bethlehem Steel. I put rocks in my pocket and my bra and my socks so I could gain weight so they could hire me back because I had five children and I needed a job desperately. Although I was working at the CMP phone company and Bethlehem Steel took out more taxes than CMP paid me. So, you know... One thing, I loved my job and my paycheck. When Ms. Hamlet got the job, she came home to share the good news with her grandfather because he worked at Bethlehem Steel, too. He said, you, I said, Dad, Granddaddy, I worked down Bethlehem Steel. He said, they hard women. I said, yes. I said, they hard me. When Ms. Hamlet showed up for her first day on the job, she said the place felt like a city unto itself. She had no idea what her assignment was going to be. My first job, they sent me um, to a place called the ore dock. What's an ore dock? Iron ore came in on ships, and our job was to tie the ships down and then go in, and they said, uh, you go down in this hole, and you had to clean the iron ore out, and the crane went down, and the hole was about 100 feet deep and two blocks long. What hole? You know, and the men would go down. I would follow them, and... You know, we would clean out the holes and, 
you know, all that. But getting out of the hole, the men would climb up, swing their legs around, and get out. My leg could not swing around. They would grab me by the back of my pants and the back of my shirt and pull me on out. As a woman working in the ore docks, Ms. Hamlet was a distinct minority. But she had an outgoing personality and a sense of humor that earned her some degree of acceptance by the men she worked with. But at first, I was scared down there. I was scared, and they were kind of like mean. They had a bathroom, and the bathroom had white and colored. So me and this white guy, we was always talking, and I say, this is white, and you ain't white, and this is black, and I ain't black. I said, so I'm going in the white bathroom and you go in the black bathroom because we ain't even one of them colors. And we would laugh. And one time the guy said to me, well, you should have thought about that before you took the job. I said, no, you should have thought about it before you hired me. And then I came back to work the next day and had women, men. You heard Ms. Hamlet mention she had five kids. At the time, she also had a husband who was disabled. So she was the breadwinner for her entire family. She joked a lot with her co-workers, but she took her job very seriously. She did it well, and her work spoke for itself. One time the line stopped moving, and the supervisor came to me and said, Rita, you have to go up on top, and he said, you got to fill up three bags. When the steel stopped coating, it blow all over the place. So I couldn't get none of it to get in the bag. I opened up three bags and tried to pick it up. It would blow everywhere. So I seen the water line and I seen the hose. So I connected it and I wet it all down and I filled up 15 bags and came back downstairs and the foreman said to me, Hamlet, if you didn't fill up three bags, you are going home. I did him like that and laid my head back and dozed on off and he came back down the steps and said, Hamlet, Go ahead to the showers. Don't even worry about punching out. I got you. He told the guy, she filled up 15 bags. The guy said, how y'all do that? I said, who ruled this world? Girls, girls, and kept on walking. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, I, it introduced me to a new way of life. Bethlehem still did. It also introduced the kind of paycheck that was hard to walk away from. Ms. Hamlet said, at first, there was a part of her that would think about quitting every day. I say, wait a minute. They hired me in April. I say, wait a minute. I'm going to send my kids to summer school, then I'm going to quit. I send them to summer camp. Then when summer camp was open, I say, wait a minute. I got to buy them some school clothes and uniforms, then I'm going to quit. I say, no, Christmas is coming, then I'm going to quit. I stayed there 30 years. I ain't never quit because after a while, you know, I don't have to rent this house. I could buy this house. I don't have to rent it. I could buy it. You know, and uh, I start changing and knowing you have a job, so you have to do what the job expects you to do and not be afraid. You know, ships would come in and they would point to me and they say, it's a woman, it's a woman. You know, they never seen a woman out there doing that. You know, but, um, yeah, I, I loved my job. In the beginning, I didn't. I was afraid because I've never seen anything like this. But in the end, when once I understood, I loved my job. Ms. Hamlet spent 30 years employed at Bethlehem Steel. 
During those three decades, she advanced through different departments at the mill. She says one big change was when she transferred to the smelting area of the mill. She didn't want to do it at first, but she saw all the guys she worked with transferring over there. So I said, why y'all going on the steel side? It's so hot over there. The man said, because you make more money, and the more money you make, then the more your Social Security and your pension will be. So they left, so I left, and I went with them. Her job title on the steel side was metallurgist. And a metallurgist is when the steel come in, it was hot molten lava when it came in. You would take a test, and it would tell you how much ore they needed, how much copper was needed, how much was needed, and it was my job to put it in because the state came to me once and said, do you know your job? I say, yes, sir. He said, tell it to me in the shortest form. I say, to make it perfect and ship it out on time. He said, okay, and that's what I did. I learned how to make it perfect and ship it out on time. And one time, the crane would go up and down, but it wouldn't go back and forward. And they was going to shut the line down till they came out and fixed the crane. So I said, wait a minute, let me see. I, I said, everybody on the floor, get off the ground, on the ground, get off the ground. And I swung the crane, it went back and forward, and I swung it again. And when it got right to, like, going to the hole, I dropped it and stirred it in there. So, you know, then... They say, Rita, you did a good job. Could you work a double? I say, I got five children and a husband. No, I have got to go home. They say, Rita, how you do that? I say, there you go again. How, how, you got to think about it. Who ruled this world? I think it might be easy to forget today just how radical it must have seemed in the 1970s for a woman to be doing hard physical labor on the front lines of a steel mill, surrounded by molten iron and thousand degree heat. Ms. Hamlet's own kids kind of had their own minds blown one day when they found out what their mom was doing. They came running home one afternoon to tell her about a crazy sight they'd seen while they were on the bus. Mom, we seen this woman on the bus. She was dressed just like a man, head on a, a thing, a hard hat on her head. So, see, every day when I got off of work, I took a shower and put my clothes back on. So I came home one day. I said, well, the woman y'all saw on the bus, was she dressed like this? They said, yeah, Mom, she had the same thing on. I said, this is how I be dressed every day at work. I said, this is how you safeguard yourself. So, you know, then my children, I said, this is where your mother worked, at that same place down Bethlehem Steel. I said, that's why you're eating, because this is where your mother worked. When I first went down there, we used to laugh because it was something to see. The men acted like they had been in prison and never seen a woman in 50 years. I can remember them hanging out of the cranes and hollering at us. And, oh, it was, you know, crazy. This is Mary Lorenzo. She worked at Sparrows Point for 31 years. She retired in 2001. It's so funny. So many of the men, like I had this one guy, he always, hey, Cherry Mary, you know, go on. And one time I'm coming home from work, and I don't know what it, something told me, look at the car next door. And I looked, and here he was, I guess his wife was driving. He was, <laughs> and 
I didn't say anything. The next day I went to work, I said to him, you call me Cherry Mary one more time, you know, and I told him. But a lot of the guys we would see in the stores, and they wouldn't dare speak because at that time their wives didn't know that the women were down there, and especially younger, you know, women. Ms. Lorenzo started her career at Sparrows Point in the labor gang. She was told she'd be working on the batteries. Now, I had to look up what that meant, and I hope I can paint a proper picture with words here. At a steel mill, coke batteries are these rows and rows of dozens and dozens of giant furnaces, like city blocks five stories high filled with steaming red-hot molten iron. So when you're talking steel and somebody says batteries, that's what they mean. Ms. Lorenzo didn't know that either. We were thinking like a battery or a car battery. We said, oh, we can do that. So we had to report to a safety room, and they gave us these wooden sandals that we would strap over top of our hard steel-toed shoes. We said, what are these sandals for? They said, you'll need them because the batteries are hot, you know. We'd have to walk up on top and sweep and do different things. And I ended, they had um, at that time, I think it was about six different batteries. And I was on five and six, I think it was, and in the mud mill. <clears throat> and that was the hardest job. <clears throat> they had a big wheel, and they would put water and clay, and then they called it the Coke when they pushed the ovens, you know, because the Coke would come in there and cook. And then they would push it out into, uh, like, train cars and take it and put it in the quencher and pour water on it and cool it off. But I was in the mud mill, and we had to make mud. And what they would do was, when they would put the doors on the ovens, they'd have to take the mud and seal the doors shut. Well, as the guys are showing me here's the mud. I stuck my shovel in the mud, and the suction was so hard, I couldn't get the shovel out. You pull and pull it. So after, I'd just say maybe two or three days, the guys seen that I would work, because we were between runs. They called them runs when they would push it out. You'd have to go up and sweep all the coke up and put it in a wheelbarrow, and then you would put it into this big wheel, the mud mill, where they would crush it up and add the clay and the water and stuff. Well, the guy seen that I would do that, and that was the last job that you had to do when your turn was over. As soon as they pushed the last oven, you had to go out and sweep the run clean for the next shift. And they knew that they could depend on me, so they would make the mud and I would go out and, and shovel all that up so they could go home like maybe 45 minutes or an hour earlier than me. But um, that was the hardest job I had was at Mud Mill. During her years working in the labor gang, Ms. Lorenzo says she got used to the crassness of her male co-workers. It got superseded by a certain camaraderie that comes with the shared danger of the work. Later in her career, though, when she advanced into what she calls the crafts, the more specialized, skilled jobs at the mill, 
She says this is when, as a woman, she ran into real problems with discrimination. When I first went into refrigeration, the older guys told me, if we go out on a job and a foreman asks you what's a problem, you tell them, I don't know, you ask the mechanic. So I remember this one foreman came up to me and he said, what seemed to be the problem? I said, I don't know, you have to ask the mechanic. He said, girl, if I had somebody in my department, as long as you, they better know what the problem was. And it was, I knew, but I had to, you know, couldn't say anything. One guy I worked with, we would go on the job. He hated to go with me. He hated because I was a girl. And after we would complete the job, he'd say to me, go get in a truck. And I'd have to go sit in a truck, and he would go talk to the foreman and tell him all this kind of stuff. Ms. Lorenzo's last job at Sparrows Point was working as a repairman, fixing and maintaining the giant overhead cranes at the mill. The crane mill rights would take off the wheels and the shafts and stuff like that and bring it into our shop. And we had machinists, and they would mic everything and if they need a new shaft and all. And I was one that would put the bearings in. So when you think of a ball bearing, you might think of those little steel balls inside the wheel of a skateboard or a roller skate. The ball bearings on these overhead cranes, they were 50 pounds each. And you had to hold them like this to put them down in in the housing because it had to be within like a thousandth of an inch or something. You had to mic them. You would press things. Sometimes the housings got so hot, the bearings melted to the housings, and we'd have to put them in a press and press them out. And that used to always scare me. I was always afraid they were going to burst and come flying out of that press at 10,000 pounds of pressure. It was a tough job, really hard on your shoulders, Ms. Lorenzo says. But she was good at it, and she knew what she was doing. She had a boss there, a guy named Bob, who really came to rely on her. Every time there would be an emergency, here would come Bob over, and I'd say, Bob, I just finished a job, and it would be two other uh, repairmen and a machinist over there dancing and all this, and Bob's but Mary, it's an emergency. It's got to be done. If I give it to them, they're not going to do it. So I'm getting punished. I got to do everything, you know. But when bosses and stuff would come in, they'd come over and ask me, you know, about what's this and, you know, when I would fix a repair, what, what was that? But it was so funny because some of the guys, as soon as they seen the bosses from the department, come in. They come flying over and say what all was done and all, and they didn't do any of it. You know, they knew what to do, but they just didn't do it. They were there dancing and having a good old time. Now, Ms. Lorenzo was not a young woman at this point in her career, and the constant physical demands of the job ended up basically burning out her shoulder sockets. She went through three shoulder surgeries, and after the third one, I got a letter saying that I qualified for a medical disability. 
and I called my orthopedic surgeon up. I said, they gave me a disability. He said, that's because you're 61, and at that time, you only had to be 62. And he said, they know if they let you go back to work, you're going to have, have to have surgery again. When she looks back at her career at Sparrows Point, Ms. Lorenzo is proud of everything she accomplished. But she's not sure whether she'd wish the experience on other women. Back in the day, she belonged to the Coalition of Labor Union Women, and she was the chair of a group called Women in Non-Traditional Jobs. We would have these meetings and they would say, why aren't more girls, why aren't we trying to get more girls in these positions? And I thought, Who would want to subject themselves to a lot of this, you know? I mean, you got to be not only physically strong, you got to be mentally strong to put up with them and to let it roll off of you. Well, I worked in an area called the pit, and I was a slagger. Kathy Garrison worked at Bethlehem Steel for 37 years. She started in 1976, working in the number four open hearth. Where they um, would cook the steel, they would add the ingredients like scrap, hot metal and that sort of thing, and they would cook it in these big ovens, and underneath the ovens, like on a lower level, that's where they would dynamite the oven, and they would pour the steel into these big vats, or they called them ladles. They were great big, huge containers that they would dynamite the oven and the steel would roll out into the ladle and then they would, a big crane would come and pick up the ladle and you would, we would pour it into these molds that almost like a popsicle mold, then that would harden and uh, it would go to the mold yard where they would take the mold off and you'd have an ingot, what they call ingot. In a strange sort of way, it was very beautiful. It was like an, a volcano, like like hot lava. And um, the noises and the everything was so huge. The, the scale was just so, you know. I remember walking in there and like, I just couldn't believe how big everything was. And, and I felt like I'd been dropped off in the land of the giants or something. And uh, the trucks, I mean, trucks with tires taller than me and all these roars and hisses and booms. And it was pretty, uh, Pretty scary at first, but they teach you a lot about safety and they make sure that, you know, tell you to look out for. Like, when they would um, dynamite the furnace, they would blow this whistle when they were, right before they were getting ready to what they call tap the heat. And, it, and they did it with dynamite up on the floor, up on the higher level. And you would hear this real loud, shrill whistle. And, you know, they would tell you, stay away from there. Don't go anywhere near there, you know. And then you would... Uh, you would hear the whistle and it would get louder and louder and louder and then all of a sudden you'd hear a boom and steel would just shoot all the way across the mill and fire would come out you know and then the steel would start pouring out of the furnace into the ladle it was it was beautiful in a strange sort of way and very scary at first but once you get used to it and you realize what's going on it wasn't too bad it was it, i used to kind of think to myself that most people don't ever get a chance to see that, especially women, you know. And I used to think, wow, if my friends could see me now, <laughs> you know, but it's, uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty exciting. 
Kathy Garrison grew up in the steel town right outside of Bethlehem Steel. She could see the mills from her back door. She used to look out her bedroom window at the stacks and the silhouette of the mill. Everyone in the neighborhood worked down there, including her uncles. She says, you just grew up knowing those were good-paying jobs with a good chance of a middle-class lifestyle. Back then, the boys in the neighborhood would get out of high school and go straight to work in the mill. Well, my brother, he was just graduating high school. And my mom came home from work one day and she says, they're hiring at the mill and um, they're supposed to hire quite a few people, she said, and they're, they're hiring women. And I said to my brother, and I was actually married at the time, I said, uh, which wasn't unusual, you got married young, and uh, not everybody, but I did. I said, well, I ought to go down there and put an application in. My husband, he worked in the tin mill. Um, and he was like, he worked, started in the tin mill, went to Vietnam, came back and went back into the tin mill. So. I said I wanted. I said I ought to go put an application in, and they laughed at me. <laughs> you know, my brother says, "I don't think you could ever work down there." I said, "Why not? Why not?" You know, and he said, "No, I don't think so." So that was like a challenge to me. <laughs> so I said, "Well, I'm going to go with you if you're going to go put an application in," which was natural for a guy to do once he graduated high school. He'd go put an application in and start to work in the mill. So they went down there, and the line stretched all the way around the building. Ms. Garrison says that's the way it was when they were hiring. People would come from everywhere, hundreds of people standing in line, waiting to get an application. She and her brother stood in that line with everybody else for hours. And when they got to the front, they both put in their applications. A week later, they got their letters in the mail. Ms. Garrison's brother was hired, and so was she. I got the letter, and when I showed it to my husband, he was like, I don't, I don't really want you to work, especially not down there. At that time, there were, you know, it was very, very common for the, the man was the breadwinner, the woman was the homemaker, and that's what you did. And kind of old-fashioned now, but a lot of men didn't want their wives to work. And he said, it's embarrassing for a man's wife to have to work. I said, why? He said, because it means he can't support his family. I can support my family. I said, yeah, but we could buy a house. And so I'm, you know, trying to convince him to let me work. And um, he said to me, well, all right, you know, if you want to go down there, you can go down there, but you're going to have to keep up with your chores. <laughs> when I think of that now, I laugh because it's like, yeah. And he said, and if it starts to cause problems, you're going to quit. Ms. Garrison reported for an orientation, filled out some paperwork, and they told her when she came back for her first day, she was going to start on the number four open hearth. She had no idea what that meant. So I come home and I told him, I said, well, um, they told me I got the job, but I'm starting on Monday in the number four open hearth. And he was like, his face, he just, you know, looked very shocked. He said, oh my God, Kathy. Oh no. Oh no. You know, he said, that's one of the worst places. He said, it's hot and it's dirty. It's very dangerous. He said, all places, you know, that, the Coke ovens and some of the, you know, the blast furnaces and stuff where we were dealing with the raw steel was usually, you know, pretty hot. All, the whole place was dangerous. Even on the finishing side was dangerous, but it was different kinds of danger. 
There were about 20,000 people working at Sparrows Point when Ms. Garrison started there, so it took her a while to even figure out where she was supposed to go. She was to report to the labor gang, which was about 800 workers strong. And these workers were sort of like temps who'd get doled out for whatever entry-level duties were needed. Her first day on the job, Ms. Garrison was assigned to be a bulldozer follower. They have these bulldozers that come into the mill, and underneath these furnaces where you make the steel, they scoop up all the hot rock, the, the slag, and put it into these great big trucks called Euclid's and then they haul it off and they just keep doing that. Well, they needed safety people because there was so much going on. There's cranes going overhead and and trains coming in and out and trucks and people and, and they're pouring the steel. There was just so much going on that they had a person who would follow behind the bulldozer to keep him safe, you know. And that was the what I did for the first week and I worked in the open hearth, and I also worked in the BOF. They sent me to the BOF, which was a basic oxygen furnace. Ms. Garrison put in some time with the labor gang, earned some seniority, and she eventually became a slagger. A slagger stands on a staging area above the steel molds when the molten steel is being poured in. You have to put caps on them, or some of them are what they call fonderites, where you have to treat them, you have to throw bags of stuff in there, but you have to stand there while they're pouring this liquid steel and, um, you know, put these caps on. They had this very primitive sort of thing. It was like a big, long thing with a weight on it and a hook. And you would pick up these big lead caps and then you would push it to the edge and put it down on top of the mold. And um, then, you know, the crane that's holding the steel, the ladle, will move on to the next one. Sometimes the um, you would get what they call a running stopper, which you couldn't get the steel to stop and steel would be everywhere, fire would be everywhere. Sometimes you'd have to run. They'd say, you know, run, and you'd have to go, you know, get out of the way because just molten steel is pouring all over the stage. And that was, um, that was really scary. Ms. Garrison was part of that first pioneering wave of women to ever work these jobs at Sparrows Point. She says there weren't even women's bathrooms on site. They converted, supervised the foreman's locker room into a locker room for us where we could go and change clothes and stuff. But as far as like female bathrooms or anything, they didn't really have that. You'd have to, in the earlier days, you'd have to get uh, one of your foremen to stand outside of the door so you could go to the bathroom. For me, it was a little different than some of the women. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of women that, that I worked with. I think I was the only woman on my turn with, you know, you probably had a hundred and some men and, you know, and in the pit where I worked at, it was predominantly black. So they used to call me little white girl, Hey, little white girl, (laughs) you know, but um, it was predominantly black because back prior to, you know, desegregation, they would put a lot of the lower paying jobs and a a lot of the harder, more dangerous work, you know, black people, they would put black people there. And um, But as time went on, the pay kind of, you know, became the same. The union, you know, negotiated, you know, getting the pay about the same. So um, it was a, a culture shock on many levels. But um, for me, the only way to explain it, I felt like I had just been given the golden key to the boys' clubhouse. And all I had to do was just shut up and do my job. And I could make lots of money, and we could buy a house real soon, you know, and that sort of thing. All I had to do was just uh, not, I mean, there were naked pictures everywhere of women, 
it was definitely a man's world. And at first, the, some of the guys didn't want you there, and they made it very clear they didn't want you there. You know, they made you feel shamed. Like, I had guys say to me, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You should be at home with your family, taking care of your kids, and, you know, what's the matter with you? You're taking a good job away from a man. And um, I always, I've always been kind of sassy, so instead of cowering down to them, I would just say, look, you know, you should be home taking care of your kids. <laughs> you know, my kids are taken care of very well. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time that I do have with them. And I would tell them, you know, if it wasn't me standing here, it would be another woman. So don't think that I'm, you know, taking a job away from another man. It would be another woman. So may as well be me, you know. Over time, Ms. Garrison gained the begrudging respect of the men she worked with. When they saw that she was there to work and wasn't afraid to get her hands dirty, she earned their respect, and she desensitized herself to their sexism. But in the earlier, like, as far as, like, the naked pictures and stuff and the talk, the, the way they talked, I would just tell them, you know, as long as you're not talking to me, you know, I don't want to hear about what you did with your wife last night, <laughs> you know, but as long as you're not talking to me... I just kind of would zone myself out and try to keep my eyes on the prize and just, you know. But there were some women that came in and said, you, you, that looks disgusting, take that down. <laughs> Which, good for them, you know. But I knew, and I seen it happen, I knew that if I caused too much of a, you know, a ruckus, they would get rid of me. So if you came in and you weren't really, you didn't get with the program and you didn't, you know, if you caused too much of a fuss, they would find some way to ship you out to another department or put you somewhere else. And not that I accepted any kind of disrespect, but I just felt like I'm on their turf, you know, when really, I guess I wasn't, but I was perfectly fine with, you know, just minding my own business and doing my job and going home. Women steelworkers were scattered throughout the plant in such a way they didn't have a lot of opportunity to network with each other. For decades, she just kept her head down and did her job. But in 2004, the management at Sparrows Point approached her with an offer. There was an old program there called Women of Steel. It had been defunct for a while, but they asked her, would you be interested in rejuvenating this group? She wasn't exactly thrilled by the invitation. I said, I guess I will, uh, you know, I mean, I guess. Um, so they, John Seary was the, was the union president at the time, and he said to me, well, I want to send you to a women's leadership program in Blacksburg, Virginia. It's um, sponsored by the International, and, you know, they'll explain to you what it's all about. So I went down there, and I took the women's leadership program, the course, and I come back, and I was like, oh, okay. Now I get it. <laughs> you know, I should have been more involved. I should have, you know, leaned in a little more, you know. So that's what the Women of Steel basically was about, just to get women more involved and, and more connected. And uh, so so we started um, having meetings every month, and it, and it took on a life of its own. It really, we did a lot of good work. Charity work, like we would have fundraisers, and we would donate it to women's Things, but it was an opportunity for women to network and to get the information that they need. Because, you know, I mean, there's all different types of personalities. You have some women that are just loud as can be. But, um, you know, there's a lot of women that suffer in silence because they don't speak up, you know. And 
the Women of Steel kind of teaches you to come together as a group and to address whatever issues you may have, but just get involved, get the information. Okay, that's just about going to wrap things up for this episode. But before we go, I want to invite one more voice into the mix here to reflect on the stories of these women of steel. Anita Kassoff is the executive director of the Baltimore Museum of Industry. And Anita, what do you take from these stories we've heard together this episode? I know the museum has put a lot of work into a new exhibition of its own called Women of Steel. Well, I love this episode. I love that you um, gave these three women the opportunity to tell their stories, which were so fascinating and so revealing. This episode is really timely for us um, because, as you mentioned, we recently opened an exhibition called Women of Steel, which tells the stories of some of the women who worked at the mill and um, explores issues of discrimination and access and the challenges that these women faced as they broke barriers. So I found this episode really revealing and really important. I should say about the Women of Steel exhibition is that we developed it during the pandemic, and it was originally supposed to go into our small exhibition, temporary exhibition gallery in the museum. And as the pandemic continued to unfold, we made the decision to take it outside and install it entirely outdoors on our campus. It's on our fence along Key Highway, where people can see it freely and safely. Yeah, it's a really cool, creative uh, adaptation on your part. It's kind of like a drive-up. Everyone's have restaurants have uh, drive-up uh, pickup. Yes. Uh, you have a drive-up exhibition that's outdoors. <laughs> exactly. It's right at the foot of Lawrence Street on Key Highway, so it's very visible. And it's also been a real joy and a privilege to hear from a lot of the uh, women steelworkers who learned about the exhibition, maybe saw themselves in the exhibition, and they are so proud and so glad to have their stories memorialized because these really are important stories. Um, This idea of women breaking barriers in industry, which I think the podcast captures so well, those are important stories, and I I think many of the women are really grateful to, to have them memorialized in this way. It was interesting to talk to these women and hear, on the one hand, the pride that they have for having accomplished what they accomplished, having endured what they endured, and then almost hearing them say, more or less, like, I'm not sure I would want to wish it on anyone else, yes. but I'm proud I survived it. <laughs> yes, Mary Lorenzo said that, I think. when I, I think she was in a group that was trying to figure out how to get more women into these jobs, and it sounded like her response was, you know, why would anybody want that? You know, I thought that was great. Yeah, well, another thing that really struck me about this episode was especially in Kathy's descriptions, they were almost poetic. It was a way of describing the steel-making process that was so beautiful and, and poetic. I just, I loved hearing her descriptions of the heat and the fire and the sense of, of an almost volcanic eruption. And I, I loved the way she described that. She was a fantastic interview. Yes, she spoke with... Uh As an interviewer, I was happy to just sit back and listen. I mean, she appealed to all five senses, describing about the sights and sounds and smells at that mill and the heat. Yeah. Uh, Remarkable women. Somebody had to go first. Uh, I'm glad we were able to capture the stories of of those who did. Anita Kassoff, Executive Director of the Baltimore Museum of Industry. Always glad to have your insights, and uh, we'll talk again next episode. We will. It's been a pleasure. Coming up next time on the podcast, the writing on the wall and the eventual collapse of Bethlehem Steel. 
the world caught up to us, and we did not change. When I think of Bethlehem Steel, I think about the Roman Empire, and I think how industrial royalty became, well, right now it's dust. By the mid-20th century, Bethlehem Steel was the biggest steel company in the U.S. But in 2001, it declared bankruptcy, decimating retirees' pensions and health benefits. Next episode, we'll take a look at how the empire collapsed and we'll bear witness to the aftermath. Sparrows Point, an American Steel Story, is a co-production of WYPR and the Baltimore Museum of Industry as part of the BMI's Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project. You can learn more about the museum and the Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project at thebmi.org. Special thanks to BMI staff members Ani Gellis, Beth Maloney, Anita Kassoff, and Joseph Abel. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for providing music for the series. This podcast is made possible with generous support from TradePoint Atlantic and Maryland Humanities. For Sparrows Point, an American Steel story, I'm Aaron Hinken. Thanks for listening.